Hello, everybody, and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. everybody my name is brett stewart joining me on this wonderful evening my two co-hosts david luzader how are you uh, i am confused brett i don't know which podcast i'm on i don't know if i'm supposed to introduce our guest or is he not our guest is he my co-host and you two are the guest this is really this is too much for me i'm gonna sit down yeah it's a little too much and before i introduce that wonderful guest nicole davis how are you our other mainstay co-host I'm good. It's been it's been a very up and down week for me. So you know, a friend of mine made it out of a repressive country and is now living happily as a refugee in Canada. And my aunt lost two toes thanks to diabetes. So uh, it's been a mixed bag, let's say. Yeah, no kidding. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad you're here nonetheless. And also, you lived in the spookiest town in America this week, didn't you? I did, yes. As of this recording, uh, last night was Halloween, which is the highest, holiest holiday in all of Salem, Massachusetts. And I had to uh, retrieve my kid from his girlfriend's house um, last night at about 10.30. And it was madness. It was complete (laughs) madness trying to get anywhere downtown. That was, I'm not doing that again. Oh, goodness. Oh, my (laughs) goodness. It's fun to walk around in. Horrible to drive in. Well, it's the end of the the movie ghoul round, at least for us. The listeners have had it done for a little while now. But joining us is a wonderful guest, Mr. Phil Rude. Phil Rude, you have been a part of a slew of different podcasts. First and foremost, you were on Geek Cinema Society a number of times, our first show. Yep. You also do Brokebot Mountain. You were involved in sketching comedy and a ton of other great shows. Uh, you were, I know you still are heavily involved over on Blazing Caribou Studios that put out a lot of great shows. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. I am, as David alluded to, contractually obligated to appear with him on 75% of my podcast. So uh, <laughs> it, it's it's why I'm here. I, I have done uh, Heck Yeah Comics. We've appeared on Zeng This together. It's uh, He's oh my... my I forgot about all that. You're right. Podcasting <laughs> partner in crime, and I'm bringing up all this horrible memories for him. Oh, uh, no, they're wonderful. Well, very, very good. We're, it's so great to have you here. It's always wonderful when we have folks that have been not only with us through Movie Go Round, but also, goodness, going back almost, we're going past two years now, so it's been a long Couple time years, since we started yeah. podcasting. So, goodness, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, this week is Around the World. That means one host gets the opportunity to choose a uh, film not made in the United States, and we get to all watch it. And next week is You Did This to Us. I do want to remind the audience that while the voting for this particular You Did This to Us has now passed, the next one has not passed. So if you would like to vote on that, you can do that. Go on over to Facebook.com slash MovieGoRound, Twitter.com slash MovieGoRoundPod. Just search MovieGoRound. You can vote and you can torture us and we can watch Deathbed or Warcraft or Legally Blonde, whatever it is, you can go and vote. You already Warcraft. Don't don't do that to me. (laughs) Don't don't make us watch Warcraft. Vote for Warcraft again. I don't know. No. 
Yeah. No, don't. <laughs> you, how low can you guys go? We're going to find out. Or you know what? Give us a treat every once in a while. What we do in the shadows. That was great. We enjoyed Go that. high, yes. guys. What we do in the shadows was great, and I loved watching that with you guys. So vote high. Aim oh, high, guys. Love it. It's going to be a TV show. They finally and- put out trailers this week. So, oh. and by the way, movie go around on Facebook is facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. Yes. So. <laughs> that is a purveyor of our Facebook over there getting the URL right because I can't keep track of that. Sort I, of thing. Want, I want people to come to the website and, and vote because we get like what, you know, 20 votes on an average oh, week. Like you can really votes. make a difference oh, yeah, by like voting 50 this time. In there. But with that said, <laughs> 40 or 50 your vote matters your vote matters all the time (laughs) uh so go and vote on the you did this to us weeks and future me who now knows what you voted on is going to tell you what we're watching next week right now and you guys voted on the bodyguard that's right the kevin costner whitney houston flick i will always love you that's what we are watching next week be sure to watch the bodyguard if you'd like to follow along. Okay, we are back. Future me announced whatever it is that we're watching. God have mercy. But this week, we watched a pick from David. We watched Pan's Labyrinth, the 2006 Guillermo del Toro movie. This haunting fantasy drama set in the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War details the strange journeys of an imaginative young girl who may be the mythical princess of an underground kingdom. David, why did you pick this movie for us to watch? Uh, so I was going through a few different movies, um, ones that I won't mention here right now because I uh, will use them for later films and want to keep a little bit of mystery. Uh, but I've found out we were going to have Phil on this episode, and Phil and I had already decided to do on our podcast, Brokeback Mountain, Shape of Water. So I thought, let's do a Guillermo del Toro double feature and do Pan's Labyrinth, which is a movie that I just love in general. It is a great film. And I knew, I think I knew that you two both liked it already. So I'm like, why don't I just give everybody a little treat? And you know, it's for us while we're recording this, it's Halloween time and it's got a little bit of a spooky feeling to it. Uh, not necessarily scary or creepy, but you know, so, uh, maybe a little creepy at the pale man part. We'll get to that. Uh <laughs> but just something with a nice kind of gothic aesthetic to it to enjoy in this Halloween time. Absolutely. Now, Phil, our guest, had you seen Pan's Labyrinth before, first of all? Uh, Yeah, I have a, I have kind of a weird history with this movie. um, And that I saw it when it was pretty new. I saw it on uh, Netflix and I remember watching it and just being kind of blown away. Like one of those, uh, you get done watching it and you go, I'm not sure what I just watched, but it was, absolutely beautiful and and i i bought the dvd and i've owned the dvd for years but i've only seen it a handful of times this is a movie that i don't want to overwatch i don't ever want this movie to become like pedestrian to me uh to where i know every beat of it by heart i love just sitting down and almost uh i would say not just watching like you experience this movie i there's something about this movie that i'm just I like to keep it special. And uh, so it's it's really strange in that I love this movie, but I don't watch it very often. <laughs> I, it's, it's almost like a special occasion kind of movie to me. Well, I feel like you hit on an interesting perspective, though, which is that you don't necessarily want to remember every beat of this movie. Uh, 
I hadn't seen this in a couple years. I know I love the movie, uh, but it was so much more wonderful having little surprises of yeah. even just remembering the weird little magical, you know, eccentricities of this movie is just really special and really magical. And it is dark, right? Like I was reminded and why this movie kind of scared me when I was younger and it first came out. I mean, this was 2006. I I saw this when I was like 11, guys. This was <laughs> This was yeah. this was hard. <laughs> the so pale man did not go away for a long time. <laughs> yeah, when, when this movie came out, it actually they had to put warnings in um I know theaters in Mexico and Spain and somewhat here in America as well that you know, it has the name Pan in it here. So people thought like, oh, Peter Pan, because parents don't for apparently read movie titles or descriptions. Uh, but even like even in places like Mexico and Spain, they had to be like, just because it has a fairy tale kind of feel to it, like this is not a movie for kids. And they had to deal with people being scared. Yeah, there's some spooky stuff in this movie. <laughs> and I that's what I'd like to talk about in part, because I think that Guillermo del Toro does a stunning job with mixing fantasy and almost an element of gothic horror like no other director I can really think of. I, I think of this, I think of the, oddly enough, the Hellboy movies, because the Hellboy movies incorporate a lot of that like underworldy fantasy type stuff when he goes and sees the elves underground or whatever. I haven't seen them in a while. And I also think of... What else is Game of the Thor? I think of Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak certainly has oh, that yeah. element of... I love Crimson Peak. It has this like gothic, dark, but beautiful atmosphere to it. And I don't know if anyone does it better than he does. Yeah, so I, I put this in our, our show doc uh, just as the Del Toro aesthetic, but I think this it's exactly what you are saying as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's also going to be one disadvantage of doing these kind of two shows with uh, with Phil back to back here is like, Phil, we've talked about this thing right. before. <laughs> We're talking about like the shape of water where you uh, you blend the reality with uh, you know, not only the fish man, but the things that they do in shape of water where like the lab has these really big crazy machines that kind of blur the lines of reality and the colors that he chooses for each film are all very specific like his movies just have a feel to them that is del toro that it is it's sort of indisputable that like he has created his own aesthetic in filmmaking and then there's pacific rim <laughs> which, which I, which I enjoy thoroughly, but it certainly does not embody the colory, artsy aesthetic of his other movies. Yeah, but you know, hey, everybody needs to take a break every once in a while. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I, yeah, I, I think of each one of his movies, and I think of a color almost. And and aside from Wes Anderson, which I, I do not like, and we've talked about that. We don't need to go back down that rabbit hole. I can't think of another director where I just think of colors when I think of their movies. I think of this, and I think of dark greens and and moonlight blues, and I think of Crimson Peak, and I think of the bright reds that are just flooded throughout that entire movie. Uh, I assume Shape of Water is bluish. It's a very bluish green. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and there's something about that where it's just, it almost reminds me of the original Suspiria that we watched a, wh a little while ago. Part of me wonders if, if Del Toro is a fan. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, 
Del Toro, man, he has an eye for that kind of filmmaking. Uh, a movie that I absolutely love, and we'll probably bring on to this podcast at some point, is Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And yeah. uh, what I love is Del Toro is, is a rabid movie fan. And so I'm going to say something, Brett, that you're going to have to uh, probably bleep out. So I just, you know, in case you want to mark it <laughs> right here, uh, Del Toro has said of that movie, which I think that movie has very a very powerful visual style. Um, he signed somebody's copy because he loved it so much. He said, anybody who doesn't like this movie is a mother. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised okay. then if Suspiria is another movie that he enjoys. Actually, yes. Del Toro, quote, it takes hold of Diallo and adds something that that uh, and adds something new formally that makes it powerful, innovative work of art. He said when he was trying to preserve it on the festival circuit. So. Wow. Okay, there you go. He does like yeah, Suspiria. Yeah, like but yeah, that, that aesthetic is so powerful. And I almost feel that this is the movie that canonized that in cinematic history, in a way. This seems to be the first Del Toro movie that American audiences just latched onto. And I know American audiences are not cinematic history as a whole, <laughs> but I do feel like it's a very easily digestible movie in, in a foreign language. I agree with that. Uh, what had he done? Uh, the Devil's Backbone, I think, before this was this other um, kind of borderline hit. Uh, but I don't think that really caught on in the States until uh, after Pan's Labyrinth. I think audiences kind of went back and found that. Um, so, yeah, I think this is kind of where he broke big. This is probably the first place I heard of him. And then I th- think he didn't. He, land, he landed Hellboy right after this. Right. I mean, he, he sort of. It was sort of that well thing we've seen over and over now of of an indie director uh, who who kind of makes good and then they go oh okay here's some real money to make a movie no, with no, and, um, and Hellboy was two years before studio. this was it really Hellboy was before this yeah oh wow oh wow <laughs> we're both Hellboy was two thousand four yeah Hellboy was two thousand four Pan's Labyrinth oh, two thousand six wow. Blade okay. two was two thousand two. He, he yeah, Blade so, I always forget Blade too. Two. Yeah, I feel, yeah. Like, I feel like we just Phil. We, we I know we just did this two days ago, and I forgot already. <laughs> wow, that happens fast. Yeah, Kronos oh was was a tiny thing. I had actually heard about heard of Kronos when it came out. It's a very small, very strange little film that that does suffer a little bit from its low budget. Um, that doesn't have as much rich color. That actually has a lot of whites in it, like whites and golds. Um, and then he did Mimic, uh, which was a lot of black and green. A lot of people forget about Mimic, probably Mimic. because it was um, not great. Um, <laughs> about the giant cockroaches is that the, is that in the, the bug one. Yeah, that's the yeah. bug one. Okay, <laughs> with Mira Sorvino. I, yeah, I I kind of remember that. Uh, probably from when it was brand new. Yeah, I think it was like ninety five. I want to say. And then and he did Blade Two, and I can't. I I'm missing one in there. I'm sure. I but, always thought the Orphanage was a Del Toro movie, but I'm no. He's a producer. The Devil's yeah. Backbone is about an orphanage. Maybe maybe that's where <laughs> I'm getting confused. How about those <laughs> Hobbit movies, guys? <laughs> well, so so uh, look, actually, uh, okay. There's a really great series on YouTube by somebody called named Lin- Lindsay Ellis. Not called Lindsay Ellis. Her name is Lindsay Ellis. Oh, she's great. Uh, yeah, she makes these really great um, video essays, essentially about movies. Hello, Topanga. Topanga loves uh, them. And uh, 
she did a really great series on the Hobbit. And she talks about for a little while, like Del Toro and what Del Toro was doing before he was removed. And we talk about the Del Toro aesthetic, the fairy tale kind of feel to his movies. That was going to be what the Hobbit was going to be. Oh man. You know, I I'm our first and foremost Hobbit trilogy apologist, but I would also be the first to tell you that his hand much more heavily involved in those couldn't have done anything but made them much better. <laughs> um, there's a lot of issues I don't think he would have run into that. There's yeah, oh, it's, into. it's so interesting. Check, really, I really do encourage people to check those out. They're like a half hour each, so they're long, but they actually will paint that series, not necessarily make it better, but you will understand why they aren't as good as you want them to be. Now, David, you did mention in our docket that Del Toro sacrificed a lot to get this movie made. Now, now that we've yes. clarified that this is post Hellboy success, what kind of sacrifices were those? Can you elaborate? Uh, well, one thing, I mean, I don't. Want, this isn't a sacrifice. It's something interesting that I think to uh, to bring up. He had been working on this movie for like twenty years, uh, and had lost the notebook at one point that contained all the information on it because he had yeah been working on it for so long and lost it in the cab driver brought it to him um at great uh at great cost to himself and so he saw this as like okay i should make this movie if like this you know this is like a sign that i should make it uh one thing probably the biggest thing is that he actually would have made um a lot of uh, he would have had a lot actually a lot bigger budget if he had agreed to make it in english um but stuck with his thing and which is funny because we kind of talked about this with shape of water he would have gotten uh he wanted to originally make it in black and white that movie but was offered more money to make it in color and he compromised there where in this movie uh he stood by of like no i want to make this with this very specific vision i won't take more money you know he he probably could have had uh, who knows how much maybe five million more dollars to make this movie um but stuck by what he wanted to make and he uh he didn't take any backend, which what backend means for people who don't know is that in movies, uh, after they're released, you, like people get paid a certain amount up front. If you have points on the backend, that means when the movie's making money, you get some of that money. Uh, so basically, he, he took whatever move, money he was going to make from directing this movie, and that was it. Um, Actually, is, no, he didn't. He ended up putting that into the production. He gave oh, up right. his no, executive no, right. producer right. salary and his director's salary. You're right. No, both of those one of them. So he made absolutely no money making this movie. Yep. But he so, says it was worth it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He stands yeah, by this movie 100%. <laughs> yeah. Now, so he just yeah, he put a lot into it. Another element of that, I think, is that it bleeds passion project in every orifice of this movie. I, there was a much better way to go about explaining that but it is so passionate bleeding <laughs> 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 orifices really there's a better way to say it no no i just it's it's very passionate it's coming out all the holes and just passion oozing <laughs> but uh one thing i noticed it's in this movie doctor, if passion oozing last stop saying <laughs> oozing <laughs> right, we're gonna backtrack about about 15 seconds there so he wrote the subs for this movie and there's no English dub of this movie, despite being an incredibly popular American movie, uh, not American movie, but Amer a movie in America. Now uh, Americans love this movie. There's no English dub. That's very much intentional. And I've always felt even when I was a kid and I saw this movie that pan's labyrinth is easier to digest because 
I don't know what it is. I feel like a lot of the times when subtitles are written by whatever company they're farmed out to in the post-production process when they're going to you know press DVDs, there's something that gets lost in the inherent meaning of what everything is saying because some things just don't translate. They get lost in translation. And since Del Toro made this movie... I think he understood how to best translate that into a different language, even when certain things maybe didn't translate A to B perfectly. And I think that's mm-hmm. what makes the subtitles of the movie flow much more naturally than most I've ever seen. Yeah, I will say with my with my limited Spanish knowledge, there are times where I was listening, I, you know, I would catch words and I'm like, well, the word they just said was not quite what's on screen here. Exactly, but, yeah. Yeah, but the but I mean, obviously, whatever the intention was is coming through more so than the words. Yeah, I, I also yeah, think. I mean, it, uh, go ahead, Nicole. I'm sorry. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is is one of the most impressively uh, fluent multilingual speakers I've ever heard. I mean he he speaks Ang- English with a very heavy accent, mm-hmm. but he has a. I think he's got a more impressive English vocabulary than I have, and I do words for a living. I word real good. And so it's, you know, he's, he's remarkable um, in how he expresses himself in both Spanish and English. So I think he really got the best translator for the job. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now let's talk about the movie. We haven't really talked a lot about the contents of this movie. And oh, I think the that's movie. Because, I think that's because the aesthetic of this movie and the story behind making this movie is so utterly fascinating. But let's talk about the actual movie. Uh, so we have this this young girl in Ophelia, and she is experiencing either the reality or the visions of this fawn coming to her and giving her tasks so she can complete her rite of passage to join her father in this weird otherworldly, underworldly, heavenly kingdom thing. And a lot of people, when they see this movie, their impression might be, it's all in her imagination because toward the end of the film, we see her interacting with the fawn and we see it from someone else's perspective and the fawn's not there. A lot of other folks, Del Toro included, say that this is happening to her, that there are... Oh man, we're jumping right to the ending. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, we are because I feel like this is a great way to dive even deeper if we've established whether or not this is a fairy tale in reality or in her imagination and does it matter i guess is what i'm getting at uh it does not matter no i i think i think that i i've watched this movie and come away with it different times being that was real and then walking away from another time being like oh maybe it was just her dying fantasy but that doesn't change the film at all for me agreed i think um whatever whatever is real to her whether it's in her head or if if it's physically real her experience is the same her experience it doesn't change the fact that the captain was an evil bastard through the whole thing and and that her and her mother were in a horrible place in a horrible situation um and and that essentially they had to kidnap a child away from the villain you know like all of these terrible things that were going on around her whether or not the fantasy part of her life was was real or not, I just think do- doesn't doesn't matter at the end of the day. To me, it makes it much more tragic if it is a fantasy, uh, because it is a fantasy built out of her trying to get away from the horrors of everything happening around her in this movie. Uh, so 
I mean, that's sad. That's sadder to me because she's just dead at the end of the movie. She's not in this. Oh, like, we all die, Brett. Yeah, I know. I had a crisis while watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but not everyone but gets he, to go to weird underworld heaven. Like, yeah, I'm. I'm kind of with you, Brett. It's like I. I go back and forth, like as I'm watching the movie, but I have. I don't know. I I understand that Del Toro is is you know touting that it's it's reality and that she just is one of the few with the eyes to see the fantastical world around her and everybody else has grown up and forgotten how to see these things through the eyes of a child and etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's I don't know maybe it's because I'm an adult and I left that behind or or something but i find it very um difficult to give myself over to it fully that she is going back to her proper realm as a princess at the end of the film and i've seen it both times as it's you know her going back there is her death fantasy which is why i'm just sitting there you know with 27 Kleenexes at the end of the movie <laughs> going, God damn it, David, why did you make us watch this? <laughs> no, no, I disagree. I mean, here's the thing. It's hard to say. I disagree with you artist on your art, um, but I'm going to do that. <laughs> so for those unfamiliar, Gamal del Toro has stated three clues that he objectively in his way, and he keeps using the word objectively in interviews that he placed throughout this movie to prove that it is reality, not fantasy. The first clue is that there's no other way near the end of the movie for Ophelia to get out of the captain's the office. The chalk is the biggest one for me. The, right. They're now there. And, and later when Mercedes goes into the room, there's a chalk outline on the wall. So yes. that's the first clue. The second clue is the blooming tree at the end or the blooming flower. And then the yeah. third clue is uh, when she's running away from her stepfather, she reaches a dead end in the maze, and all of a sudden the maze opens back up and closes behind him. And and I don't know if I buy any of these three personally, because... Now, oh, go ahead, David. Uh, I just want to ask, Brett, would this change for you if while they were running around the labyrinth, David Bowie walked out and was, <laughs> give me the child. That would Dad's be the child greatest Dad. movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, it didn't even dawn on me that Brett was super disappointed when this started and he realized it wasn't a sequel to Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, literally last week, by the way, Jim Henson's daughter did announce that they have confirmed they're doing a sequel. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know. They look very rarely. Look, I'm of the camp of like, let's judge art based on its merit. But everything about the fact that everyone involved with that movie who made it is pretty much dead. I'm like, eh, maybe don't. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. don't. But you know what? I For me, these clues are, I don't buy the chalk because maybe there's a different way to get out of the room. I don't know. And I don't, I don't know if I buy the labyrinth opening and closing because... We're also seeing the world shift around the captain as he is essentially drugged by Ophelia toward the end of the movie. And couldn't that just be him getting kind of loopy but and not he finding a girl in a maze? But he didn't see it. He didn't see her go through the walls. But nobody sees it. How do we know that what we're seeing is, you know, the That's objective? That's what I mean. How do we know we're getting reality but, from the camera? Well, 
But yeah. uh, but the problem there is that Brett's saying the reality we're getting is what the captain sees, which we don't have evidence for that either. Yeah, and maybe this is what's so beautiful about this movie, and I know that's what Guillermo del Toro loves about it. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know if I buy him because. And, and here's the thing: I don't know if if he buys him because then later on in the quote he says, and that's what's great about this movie. Uh, this is my interpretation. I'm not necessarily saying it's more valid than anyone else's. Well, well, that's. I mean, that's the thing about art, though. You give it up to the audience and you say right have have a reaction to it you know if you hold it so you can only be viewed this one way then but the artist has an intention yes but, yeah. i mean they, they know what they know what they want the takeaway to be once they release it they know they lose control of that but it i think he has an intention and uh despite the different points of view the blooming tree at the end is sort of evidence of at least that one thing that was, you know, that she went under and killed the toad that was killing the tree. Uh, right. Then the flower blooms at the end. It's sort of, well, but, okay, something happened there. But again, that's something that nobody sees. That's just what the cameras pointed at. And is that showing us the real world or the fantastical world? I mean, it depends on if you believe that Ophelia is a reliable narrator or not. Well, I don't believe in fairies, so die, Tinkerbell, die. The tree is <laughs> blooming after Ophelia dies. Yeah, well, yeah, but Ophelia is our point of view character th- throughout the movie. Right. We, are, right. You know, we, we track is with she, her. though? We yes. see things go on with the captain that she isn't a witness to. Yes, but we are still experiencing things primarily, you know, from her point of view, in a way. She is, she is, the, she is the protagonist of the movie. Yeah, she's the protagonist of the movie, but I wouldn't say that everything is necessarily her point of view. Some of it's Mercedes' point of view, some of the little of it's the doctor's point of view. Oh, this movie Titanic does. It's all the old lady's <laughs> point of view, even the stuff she wasn't there for. We're never going to see an old Mercedes tossing the baby into the ocean. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, I think that's what's great about this movie. How about tosses the knife into the ocean at the Yeah, whatever. Yeah. All I could think of was the baby for little, some reason. A little knife that's too short to kill the captain properly at the end. Oh, God, that scene when she's cutting him up, though. Okay, oh, the so violence. That's... The violence in this movie is so hard. Yeah, and, and now I have an issue with that scene, and I'm glad you brought this up. I, I put this in our docket because I got beef with Mercedes in this scene why 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 not kill him like she's alone with him she's dicing this dude up uh she's dicing the captain up and she stabbed him in the heart she stabbed him in the back she sliced him in the mouth and then she purposely instead of killing him says and don't mess with that kid as she runs away uh, under the assumption of like i know you're going to live please don't mess with this kid why would you not just kill him killing someone is hard brett (laughs) <laughs> that's taking a life i don't it's everyone's dying around this man and if you are okay sticking a knife a in his mouth and yeah. slicing him up i think you can go three inches higher into the neck uh, higher from the mouth into the neck brett anything anatomy works jaw was hanging down it was pretty far yeah. it was pretty disgusting uh, Look, I, I can stand by her not killing him because, like, you can tell how hard it is for her to even do that to him. 
and yeah, then to and like, like and, I, and I and I joke, but I know there's also like the through line of the movie of like she thinks she's a coward, but really she's a hero, and like I know that that is part of the movie, but I struggle with the fact that she doesn't just kill him, like because so, she starts well, stabbing him up pretty good. Here's just a question I had to put in our doc, and I forgot which death is the hardest to, uh, for you guys, and why is it the doctor? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you. I don't have anything else to say after that because I was going to say the <laughs> because it's it is the most there's a really dumb part of the movie where the captain turns to one of his cowering subordinates and says this is the only decent way to die as he like gets out from behind a tree and starts shooting while walking up a hill and it makes me think in the movie that the only person who dies a decent death at least well I mean yeah, the good guys, but the person who dies the most decent death is the doctor. And it's not at all like flaunty, like the, the captain really wants death to be. And he has this image of death and he's always carrying around a watch because he wants his kids to know what time he died. And that's weird. But like the doctor doesn't have a sugar coated vision of death. Like so many people in this movie do. It is a very admirable way to die the way he goes, and it's so quick and it's done. And I, and there's something really haunting about it. Yeah, no, I, Phil and Nicole, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on it too. Because every time I watch it, I'm I'm so it's just so striking. Uh, for me, it's it's the farmer and his son who are hunting rabbits oh, at the yeah. beginning, just because it makes me so angry to watch that scene. Um. It's it's just difficult to watch on every level that, that, you know, these guys are scared and they're not quite sure what's going on. And then he beats the son to death in the face. It's 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 absolutely brutal violence. And and it's just uh, it's just so tyrannical and violent. And, and it just makes you I mean, you've known the captain for what, 10 minutes at that point. It it just immediately makes you just hate him and, to the to the core. And, and, and he, yeah, so he's just, he's annoyed that it's someone else's fault that he killed them. Yeah, yeah, he he blames he blames his men. He says, "Search them better next time." And and it's just like, oh my god, this guy is. Uh, it, it just it makes me angry. It's a very difficult scene to watch. Yeah. Nicole. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the doctor is hard partly because you know he's he's such a sweet character and he's trying to be brave in his way and it's very difficult for him and he looks just like the guy who played toby ziegler on the west wing (laughs) he looks like richard schiff (laughs) (laughs) and so he's yeah it's it that was that was weirding me out for a while. I'm like, he looks just like this other guy I know. And I can't remember who it is. And I had to go down such a rabbit hole to find it. Um, But yeah, it's, I mean, the hardest death for me is, is Ophelia's because I can't, I haven't been able to immerse myself into it to the point of thinking that, yes, she's really going to a magical land. You know, to me, she's, dying and this is her her dying vision is that she's going to her father who's really a king and her mother who's really a queen and 
she's a princess of a magical kingdom and you know doesn't every girl doesn't every little kid dream that maybe their mundane parents aren't really you know so lame that they have a, a noble destiny that they're supposed to be having and somehow things got mixed up you know so it's it's to me it's a near death experience or almost a death experience that she's she's having on her way out and it's and she's a child and she's dying and it's so sad <laughs> yeah so, yeah. yeah it's a bus everybody else to one degree or another knows what they're getting into right. you know but yeah yeah I just man, every time that doctor gets shot, an unarmed man shot in the back, yep. and yep. he keeps walking. I just, oh, yep. and then I, he immediately needs him. I think, I think that is yeah, almost. Yeah. It, it's just like it's almost funny, you know. Like it's not ha ha funny, but it's like a weird irony of like he murders this guy, and then they're like, "Oh, we need the doctor. Your wife's dying," and he's yeah. just like, "Oh." Uh, like Oops. it was, it was one step away from being a Monty Python sketch of, uh, you know, just going, Oh, uh, I wish you'd gotten here five minutes ago. And though I, I think another death honorable, honorable mention of another death that is, um, particularly devastating is the one that happens literally seconds before the scene we keep talking about, which is the oh. horrifying torture yeah. of one of the rebels the, the the stuttering one. I I don't know if we ever get his name. No, I'm looking toward. Uh, I think no, <laughs> I think he gets. It probably gets mentioned once when they're in the camp, right? But he's he's one of the he's one of the oh. the, the rebels that that has a significant stutter. And well, there's he, there's Frenchie. There's Frenchie. So I have to imagine if we're using uh, uh, Frenchie loses the leg. Right. If we're right. using dwarf rules, he's stuttery. Okay. <laughs> well, Stuttery gets made fun of for having a stutter, brutally tortured, and then kills himself. And, and I say he kills himself because he does. Uh, the doctor goes and holds the needle to his arm, and he pushes it in. He doesn't want the doctor to have that on him. And, oh, man, that's a, that's a tough one, too. The count to three... Uh there's so much suspense built up in that and you know, yeah. he's not going to do it. And it just, Oh my God, you could hear a pin drop in my living room while I was watching that. It was just so tense uh, yeah. watching him struggle with it. It's, it's such a difficult scene. There's yeah. And there's, and there is, there's some great stuff too. Like, cause the, the violence of this movie, there is some really horrific stuff, but there's also stuff that they cut away from or don't quite show you. So, you know, you kind of, you have the, the, the torture, you have the imagination of it and you just see the aftermath. And that is good filmmaking because it's like whatever you imagine they did to him is worse than them actually showing it in a lot of ways. Like the leg, the leg is the other thing. Yeah. They, they cut away right when he starts. Right. When he starts digging saw. in. It, yeah. yeah. Frenchie's leg for, for context for the, uh, the yeah. uh, <laughs> listeners, poor Frenchie. But you see a little bit of it. You see just enough, right? Like you see the yeah, first cut. Just enough. Uh, Some would say too okay. much. Okay. So the, the stuttering man's name in the credits is uh, given as El Tarta, which translates as the cake. Um, so <laughs> Makes sense. Either Google Translate is failing me or there's some sort of idiosyncratic translation of it that I don't know about. Uh, cause it's a cultural thing, but 
Otherwise, I don't get it. It's a Del Toro translation. So uh, he was probably eating cake at craft services table all the time. And they're just like, all right, your character's name is uh, El Tarto. <laughs> well, yeah, his his death is, is, is troublesome. Now, a quote that yeah. Nicole put in our docket. Pan's Labyrinth su- suggests that fairy tale violence helps the vulnerable process and overcome real life conflicts and that real life violence permanently smashes the soul and the heart. This was from Carrie Ricky of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Nicole, why don't you delve a little bit into this, what your thoughts were with this particular quote? It's a, it's a tough one to uncrack. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I think it actually very succinctly sort of sums up my view of the movie um, that Ophelia is so obsessed with fairy tales because it helps her it's helping her deal with her father's death it's helping her deal with the fact that her mother has married this horrible man it's helping her deal with the war that's been going on around them and the the ongoing rebellion um and it's it also shows the impact of real life brutal violence and and what it does to people how it hardens them or breaks them so, you know, that's, I thought she put it so well that I, I wanted to throw her, you know, the quote from Carrie Ricky in here because I, right. I thought she really captured it. Does this movie, though, show that real life violence smashes the soul? Because her soul, perhaps even most eloquently displayed in the final scenes of her vision or reality, doesn't seem to be smashed by the real life violence. Like her soul seems to have seems to be the only thing that did survive all of this. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one because it's like, is her mind breaking there and trying to, uh, in yeah, the final moments of horrific trauma, mask what's happening to her? That's a good point. But it I is. Don't know. Maybe she didn't, you know, maybe Carrie Ricky didn't, doesn't get it exactly right because I mean, Ophelia is always true to herself throughout the movie she always makes her own choices they're not always the right choices but she always makes her own choices right but her disobedience is if you cling to this being a fantasy fairy tale her disobedience is what saves her in some ways yeah in some uh, ways but, no grapes are that good david no grapes no, are that good. You know, but, but at the <laughs> end because she disobeys the fawn right right she passes the final test but but you said the grapes the, the pale man there that does you know what is there are there's violence in this movie that it's like oh that's hard to watch for a second and it's over but the but the thing that everybody agrees about is like oh the the scary part of the movie is the pale man which is just a guy walking across the room you know at yeah, the, yeah, at the end of the day that. but there are paintings all of the all over the walls of him eating children right no that's what I'm saying like like there's there's, there's a imagery. pile of children shoes David yeah. that's not scary yeah. no it's horrifying <laughs> that's what I'm saying that, like the, the fairy tale part of it is like like what it does in our imagination is so powerful yeah and let's 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 dig into the pale man more because the pale man even though he takes up such a small portion of this movie uh it seems iconic. like yeah, yeah. right there has been people who have talked about this movie have not known the name of it and have just made this gesture for the audio yeah. listeners i'm putting up my hands to the side of my head and be like is it that guy because he is so synonymous with this movie and that is the wonderful doug jones doug jones is um 
the sex fish in I believe that what is the movie you guys okay. watch? Shape of okay. Water. Stop. <laughs> Does she have sex with we, that fish? That's why I'm afraid to watch does. it. Okay. Yes. Okay. She has sex with the fish, Brett. And that's what the entire movie's about. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. fish porn. <laughs> two two hours. Two hours. They mention it in one thirty second scene that she has sex with that's what the whole movie is about. You know who else had sex with a fish? Tom Hanks in Splash. And nobody makes it. Nobody labels him as a fish banger his entire life. No. Kevin Klein, the fish don't want it. We're talking about Doug Jones real quick. Phil, what, what is Doug Jones known for? Doug Jones is known for being the singing crescent moon in the McDonald's commercials of the early 90s. He was back tonight was his big break into show business. I needed to make sure that got set. Tonight. Oh, that was getting dropped in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. tonight. So, so Doug Jones wow. shows up, though, in pretty much every Del Toro movie. Like he's a, he's in he's sprinkled throughout Crimson Peak. He's basically the same exact character in Hellboy that he seemingly is in Shape of Water. Again, I'm really stressing I've never seen Shape of Water here. Um, Obvious. <laughs> he, he's, in, he's in a lot of stuff where he plays a tall... He's in the, he's in the new Star Trek series where he's exceptional he's in Hellboy. In yeah. Right. right um, yeah, he's Abe Sapien in Hellboy. Abe's, right, and, he, and I, that's why I was saying he's like kind of the Shape of Water dude in Hellboy. They're, he just... He's a fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so... And, he, and he's yeah. brilliant. He's like he's like the ultimate. He's never needed he's great. to yeah. speak. Well, in right? this movie, in this movie, oh man! So first of all, that fawn costume, the people that designed that fawn costume, good god, that thing is amazing. Uh, yeah. But he he's also said it's it's the most comfortable thing he ever wore because of the way that it was designed. Um, really, but what's great about Doug Jones with that is that he doesn't speak Spanish. He does not. So he had to learn how to say it all phonetically. So the lips would match up. But on top of that, he had to learn uh, what Ophelia's lines were so that he would know the timing and the pacing of what he was saying and when to like pause and interrupt and stuff like that. But he also uh, could not hear because of the contraption that moved the ears on the, the mask of the fawn. So, how much work this guy impressively does with with just so little sensory input and so little knowledge of Spanish is just commendable. And he is also, right. of course, the pale man that we've been talking about. Yes, also. Yes. That. He, and he could only see through the nostril holes, apparently, of that yeah. costume. So, he's a, he is a remarkable physical performer. Absolutely. Um, and he's, he, he's not bad as a... As a speaking actor as well, he doesn't, you know, he, he's got this this niche in Hollywood where about half the time he's buried under makeup and you don't hear a word out of him. But, you know, he is a very capable actor who can deliver lines as well as put in a physical performance. So yeah. he's excellent. In I just the, want to make uh, sure he Star gets Trek. credit for that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, when you when they they're making, you know, they're remaking Nosferatu, and you find out that he is playing Count Orlock or you know the vampire right. creature in that movie, it's like, yeah, that makes perfect yeah, sense. Perfect. That's the perfect that guy to cast. <laughs> yeah, and he's also amazing as a as a singing crescent moon known as Mac tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now the new Star Trek, he he delivers lines and is buried under makeup. Right. Isn't exactly. That right? Yeah. He has his, he has his <laughs> dual roles. I think he's also kind of fishy in that too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, no, he's an alien. A fishy alien. But oh, stop it. 
<laughs> I know I know somebody is obsessed with fish here. It's not us. Yeah, but the people who <laughs> have seen the movie have not talked about it. It's only people who have seen the movie that don't talk about fish sex. It's people who have not seen <laughs> Shape of Water who are like, there's fish sex in that movie. I'm not watching that fish yeah. porn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, but with Doug Jones, I would love to get him in a room with Andy Serkis and just listen to those two talk. Because oh, but the, huh. what they do is so kind of different, though. Is it, though? Because, like, they are iconic actors who can, while deliver speaking lines well, have made a career for themselves. Now, granted, like, one is practical and one is CGI primarily, right? Like, Andy Serkis is an incredible yeah. motion capture artist. But, like, what they do is is characters through movement. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll have to admit that I don't know. You know, that, that's kind of the question there of how much in the subtle movements is um, is like the CGI characters, you know, of uh, of Andy Serkis, you know, sort of fame. Where we're talking about like Caesar and 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 Gollum and stuff like that. You know, the big sweeping movements. Obviously, that they need that to track that. But then, like the small gestures, the facial stuff. How much of that is the computer versus you know Doug Jones, who has to give these nuanced performances on screen as we're seeing them? I'm just wondering. I don't know if people know better than that. Please let me know because I'm insanely curious. How it's much? My understanding are those similar. It's it's my understanding that for the C- motion capture, there's a there's actually like this camera rig that's pointed at the actor's face, mm-hmm. uh, and he's got a lot of tracking dots on it that actually do track his facial expressions. Yeah, I think that's that is can be mapped onto them. Yeah, I think that's more so. That's I, not like super recent, but like within the last few years. That is more recent. Like, yeah. yeah. Though I think so you're is, on to something, David, which is like, especially in the early years of these guys' careers, at least in the contemporary eye of, you know, early Del Toro stuff like this and also early famous Del Toro. And then also um, like early Lord of the Rings, which is, I feel like Doug Jones has to account for a lot more going on around him because he has to understand the movement of the costume and how it flows and how it creaks and moves along. Whereas a lot of that was handled for Andy Serkis and post but they're both incredible actors and that kind of ties in perfectly to what I wanted to talk about next, which is the sound design of this movie, which is, is remarkable. This was the first time I've, I've ever watched this movie with headphones on and I got a lot more out of it because it's so beautifully constructed sound wise. And to me, the most beautiful sound of the movie is the movement of the fawn because every time the fawn moves, there's this creaking sound that sounds like a thousand-year-old tree just slowly coming to life. And I can't, I don't know how they made that sound. I don't know how they got it to just be so perfect. But there's something magical about the sound he makes when his limbs move. And that is incredible. That is attention to detail. And that is something that Del Toro is famous for. Yeah, so yeah I think really- I think the sound all around on the I mean, when when the captain walks, you hear the creak of his boots, right. like the leather in his boots. Uh, same with Ophelia. She's wearing those patent leather shoes and you can hear those when they throw that little root man or whatever she had in the bowl under the bed. The her, mom it, yeah. her, her mom throws it in the fire and you can hear it screaming. 
Uh, it is like <laughs> horrific, but it's it sounds right. You know what I mean? Like it sounds yeah. appropriate to to the scene and to the character. It's not just some generic scream that they plugged in there. Like they really took their time with all of those little things. Yeah. One thing, uh, Phil, you said at the beginning of the show, you you know, you don't want to overwatch this movie to kind of spoil the details where you know it that well. I forgot that sh- the mom throws the mandrake root into the fire. I thought it was the captain. In I my did memory. too. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, that's, that's what I was talking about. Like these yeah. little things I forget about and then I remember them differently. And I was just like, wait, he's leaving the room. He hasn't yeah. thrown him in the fire yet. Yeah. And, yeah. And, in the the captain, whenever like you hear just the the ticking of the clock begin, it's yeah. Right. But speaking of sound sound design, it's always just so well done. Yeah, and and I'm yeah. so glad that Phil mentioned like the like the boots on the floor when the captain comes near, because even from the opening scenes of this movie, when and I'm getting really sound nerd on this. I realized this. I was wearing good headphones and I was all over this movie, but the opening scenes of the movie and the brushes of fabric as they get out of the car and just things that don't get picked up when you just put a boom over the shot and do sound status quo. There must've been so much Foley work done in order to exquisitely get the sound the way Guillermo del Toro wanted it. And I think that's paired beautifully with incredible practical effects because so much of this movie, as we've touched on, briefly with doug jones is practical i mean yes there's some cgi in there yeah but it's all mostly practical and the cgi i was kind of disappointed because again going back to not overwatching this movie you know in my head there's just like this vivid image of her facing down the toad and it's this beautiful (laughs) shot thing and i'm watching it now i'm like oh this was 2006 and like the fairies, you know, the fairies are kind of move about so quickly. Like you can kind of forgive that and it's hidden, but there's just times where like it lingers on the toad and you're like, mm, right. Well, the toad was partly practical. They had a puppet. Yeah. So but they just couldn't do some of the motions properly. Yeah, but You can without. really tell when the CGI is there, which is like, it's fine. It's, it doesn't break the movie yeah. for me at all. But I, I do want to go back to the sound design for a second. I mean, I, I watched this. I watched this. I watched most of the special features on my DVD. I watched uh, most of the movie again with uh, Del Toro's commentary on. And um, one of the interesting things I thought he said was he realized the importance of sound design by playing video games. Mm, and nice. that um, because a good good sound design really adds to the immersion of you in the world that you're watching and so that's why he really wanted to pay attention to it and and it really does it it brings you deeply into the world to have that the the sounds seeming to be around you in the proper way especially especially horror games which i think you know would be an influence on someone like del toro why he was working on the new silent hill game right and he silent also hill had games, a game called was... insane which he was working yeah. on primarily it was supposed to be a first person cosmic horror game about an alien invasion at the turn of the century yeah, yeah. horror games sound design is so important so that doesn't surprise me actually at all I love. I just love the mental image of him playing horror games. <laughs> Del Toro sitting on his couch at home playing Outlast. 
It just makes me happy. Cat, a, on, a, cat on his a, shoulder, yeah. just going there, to town. <laughs> there, is a, uh, there is a weird game coming out called Death Stranding. Uh, Hideo Kojima is making it. And in the trailer, because they were working on Silent Hills together that never got made for reasons I don't have time to complain about here. Uh, <laughs> where... Uh, so much complaining to do. So, so little much time. complaining to do. Uh, but Guillermo del Toro is in that game. Like he's he did motion capture for it. His physicality is in the game. It's just very fun to see being like, oh, hey, I know who that is. <laughs> now, as we close our show here, and I can't believe we're already. I know this is one of those movies where we could do twice as long of a show. But we do have a question at the very top of our docket. And I, I feel like we've touched on it here and there but just to root us back at the core of what makes this movie great a question from nicole or rather a statement Guillermo del toro's talents for blending a firm grounding in reality with an equally real feeling supernatural world and i just want to go back to this because this this ties to our conversation about whether or not the real the, the world is real or whether it's her fantasy but the fact that the movie intertwines those worlds so elegantly that she can walk from one to the next and have it not feel jarring is I think one of the real triumphs of this movie. Yeah, that was something that I got um, from the the commentary. I mean, I had, I had noticed that in my watching and put that down as a note and Del Toro addresses it very early on uh, in the commentary where Ophelia first puts the eye into the statue and releases Uh, the stick insect, which is a a fairy. So it's this, you know, the entry of the fantastical. And he said, one of the things that makes the fantastic tangible is to make it mundane, which is why he wanted to show a lot of the fantastical elements in the daylight. You know, it's not always nighttime. It's not always in the shadows. It's not always hidden. It's, you know, sort of just the you know the fawn walks into her attic room and is just you know standing there next to the bed and talking to her and bumping into things and it's by making it integrate so well you know by by making it interacting in a normal everyday sort of way with the normal everyday world it makes it feel closer to real I think on that note, like the fawn is such a, it's made of nature. It's made of earth, you know, like the, is it the first time we see it where the fairy lands on it and it moves and you think you've been looking at a tree in the foreground and it's like, oh no, that's the fawn. Like it's right. It's there the whole time just blending in. Yeah. They Uh, texture it to make it look like it's made out of wood. Yeah. uh, He's, he's part of the forest. Uh, the forest is sort of part of this mill that they're all, you know, living at everything about the setting, the real world setting is blent into the natural world and the natural world is a fantastical world. So I think it all blends together. I think the setting they chose for this movie has a lot to do with, uh, or, or loaned itself to del Toro's talent for blending those two worlds and, and putting them together. If you look at something like Hellboy, where he does this too, he has these two very different, he has the real world and then he has like the supernatural underground world, but the real world is like this gothic looking city. And so that architecture blends in real well too. So I think he chooses settings that he can, he can mash those together. 
For our audio listeners, my cat is pushing the mic in case you hear that. Um, yeah, no, I think you're entirely right. That's such an eloquent idea that it is blended by the environment, perhaps is the is the, the twine keeping it all together, right? Because those environments do work together so cohesively and so well. And that's what makes this movie so magical to me. Is And it also, it's like, it's so far removed from everything there's this war happening. There's there's two wars happening, right? There's there's World War Two is happening, uh, or is it World War One? I'm not. I can't remember. It's World, it's World War Two, right? Because they was mentioned the Normandy. Okay, so World War Two is happening, and they're so far removed from World War Two that getting papers sent to them through you know long communiques about D Day is like mind blowing to them, and then they themselves are removed even from the overall giant conflict happening in in their country. I mean, we're looking at a giant civil war and we only ever see the perspective of 50 people living in the woods. Like it's it's really incredibly like siloed into this tiny little space that I think really lends Guillermo del Toro the ability to create that fantastical world around it. Though I suppose in Hellboy he does that with city and underground and like he's just a really good director, guys. I would highly recommend. <laughs> no, I, totally. I think I, you're right about that. The you know in the in the commentary he mentions that he wanted the forest. You know the the forest where they went to shoot it is normally this very lush green and leafy when um, at that time of the year, but. Apparently, Spain had been going through its worst drought in 30 years, so they actually had to set dress the forest by, like, planting (laughs) ferns and sticking moss on the trees. And And they had to, like, add in a bunch of stuff later on, so, like, they, you know, like, the the gunshots and stuff like that, because they didn't want to risk a fire. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, It has been pointed out to me on this podcast that sometimes I have a thing that I like to say that maybe, you know, kind of I add my final point to it. I'm going to do that right now. Uh, I learned something with this movie this time around, um, which has to do with the Oscars. And that is for foreign films, uh, the way that that category is decided is actually any film that runs in any country um, for seven days is eligible. But the way that it's narrowed down is that a country selects one film from any film that, you know, that that ran there that year that's from there, and they submit that to the Oscars as best foreign language film. This was the movie for that year that uh, that Mexico picked. And so if you've somehow listened to this and you were like, ah, am I, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to watch it. Mexico decided this was the best movie that came out of Mexico that year and uh go watch it huh that's fa- so it's like a it's like an olympic type choosing of movies coming out of countries that that's fast huh. yeah they don't always do it they they don't always make what what a lot of people would consider the right choice no, yeah absolutely not yeah no a year and a half ago the the south korea chose uh age of shadows instead of the handmaiden to submit um to the oscars even though like Every critic on the planet was saying, oh, my God, The Handmaiden is so amazing. You have to go see it. It's this beautiful movie. It's lush and it's twisty and it's fun, you know, and if South Korea was like, yeah, you know what? Nah, <laughs> let's do this other one. 
So now one could argue that the Academy doesn't always pick the best movie from the United States to get honored as well. So it's, right. it's all around the table. Okay, fine. This wasn't the best movie 2006 for Mexico. I'm so sorry. I mean, <laughs> but in this case, it was. Oh, okay. In this case, well, it was. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Phil, because I forgot that 2006 is my perennial I like to bag on this movie for getting an Oscar. Crash. Crash won Best Picture. Uh, Crash. Oh, is that the year? This is the year the Crash won it. Now, Crash. That was the year I learned racism is bad, Brett. Right. You learned racism (laughs) is bad from the eyes of Crash. Oh, my God. That movie. It infuriates me. Um, And all, by the way, uh, having grown up and gone to school post Crash, I have seen Crash at least 20 times in a classroom. Oh, me too. I went to I went back to college around that same time, and we watched Crash uh, at least twice in different in different yes. classes. Is this where I get to admit that I've never seen Crash? Uh, you're it's fine. That's fine. fine. Can I vouch this thing. the David Cro- the David Cronenberg movie called Crash is way more interesting. Totally different movie. Well, in any case, uh, you know, I yeah, I saw it in high school. I saw it multiple times in college, uh, but I digress. Was this movie eligible to make that not happen? <laughs> no, no, because it was bullshit. a. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like the the best animated movie will never get nominated for best picture as well because that they're like well, they're an animated movie. They're not a real movie. I think they look at foreign films the same the same wait, way. No, like wait, we talked about this. Beauty and the Beast was nominated for best picture. Yeah, several what? animated films have been nominated for best picture. Oh, do they yeah. win? So, okay, What's the last they... animated picture that actually er, actually won best okay, picture. None of won, but it's been a very small amount. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that was one of the main reasons well, they this... they started a best animated film category was because of those movies. This movie didn't even win best foreign language film. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, it did not. It I'm the looking lives at of, the, the lives of others nomination. Right? Well, the lives of others was a fantastic movie. I still haven't seen. I've always wanted to. I remember being so upset though because all I knew was Pan's Labyrinth, and I saw that movie in theaters, and I was like, "It's so so great!" And then this movie that I've never heard of from Germany won, and now I've heard it's you know amazing. But yeah. Still. No, it did win. Uh, it was nominated, but did not win Best Foreign Language Film, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Original Score. It was. It did win uh, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, and Best Makeup. And it was. It's one of the few movies to be nominated for Best Original Screenplay that was not also nominated for uh, Best Picture. Yeah, get out of my life, Oscars. I mean, this is the year that. <laughs> That George Clooney gets nominated for Best Director and Guillermo del Toro doesn't get a nod on this. All right. Um, well, hey, look, Shape of Water is where he got all of his love. That's, that's true. He got all the, all the stuff. Well, <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for us on this discussion of Pan's Labyrinth. Next week is going to be You Did This to Us. I mentioned it at the top of the program. It'll also be in the show notes. We don't know what that is right now, but I'm, I'm sure it'll... Give us weird stuff, guys. I'm sure it'll be weird. So <laughs> let's go around the table. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. What projects are you a part of right now? What are you doing? Where can people find you? All that jazz. Uh, you can find me and find out what I'm doing as it comes out at philru.com. That's my art blog, and you can get all my social media handles from there. And on your podcatchers, David Luzader and I talk about movies on Brokebot Mountain. We talk about science fiction. We talk about the shape of water. We talk about how it's more than banging fish. 
it's it's a it's a great podcast i love hanging out with david and talking every week about uh science fiction and uh i hope you guys follow us over there and check us out in the well, show i notes. will definitely be downloading that episode if only to see how many times you say the term fish bang and <laughs> we, we very specifically have a very small segment where we just hash it out <laughs> where we well, just complain about people like brett who think that's pretty much <laughs> actually uh... yeah so <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to watch the movie i realize that but i am gonna put that please do it's a it's a fantastic movie brett i think you if you like del toro's aesthetic this is my recommendation to you yeah i really recommend you check that movie out if if you get nothing but production design appreciation out of it it will be well worth your time and oh, richard I, jenkins just... and richard jenkins absolutely oh, oh i love richard jenkins and david shannon okay. michael, michael shannon. shannon michael shannon I, i'm in i'm in uh yeah i you know i'm excited to see it and i'm also going to put that episode of brokeback mountain in the show notes of this episode just in case anyone wants to just tap a quick link and go on over there i feel like that'd be a really good companion piece to this so that will be in the show notes david luzader you're also uh, you're on a show called Brokeback Mountain, right? I am a show called. Uh, in fact, it's the same show called Brokeback Mountain that Phil Root is on. What? And uh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to use my plug time to encourage people to go to philroot.com and check out Phil Root's art. And uh, that's that's all I got this week. Thanks, David. Oh, thank you, Phil. <laughs> and and Nicole, where can people find you online? What are you up to? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd and. Nicole underscore Davis. I recently added a few more reviews. Um, you can find me shepherding our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and it's at your word whiz. Y O U R W O R D W H I Z. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. That's the best place to find me online. You can rate the show on iTunes and Stitcher, particularly iTunes. We would love to get more of you coming in and rating. That way we get more people into the audience, into the feed, into the You Did This To Us weeks. And I'm also going to use part of my plug time to promote Phil's art because on Instagram today, he did post a really rad uh, sketch that he's working on of the fawn from this movie, which I'm surprised you didn't mention, Phil, because it's really cool. And I might ask you if I can grab it to put in the show notes. Um, uh, so. When I I am wrapping up the inking, hopefully in the next uh, 24 hours, I oh, will yeah. have it finished and I'll shoot you a scan of it um, yeah, so cool. if you want to throw it in there. There is a lot of weird uh, twisted branches to draw into those legs. There's a lot of detail in the fawn. Yeah, oh, guys, if if you if you want an endorsement of Phil's art, uh, I loved <laughs> something he drew so much. I have it tattooed on my body. Yeah, that is true. That is true. It's a great tattoo. So you can. I have it framed. I have one of your pieces framed in my bedroom. That feels great. Feels great. Yeah, feels great. Okay. <laughs> I feel so, bad. I didn't plug Phil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah, you uh, I agree so. that Phil's art is excellent. <laughs> Check it out. Well, that's going to do it for myself, David, <laughs> Nicole, and Phil. We'll see you next week when you do something to us. We'll see you then. Ooh.